Our reading for the service today comes from Luke 2, verse 41 to the end of the chapter. This passage picks up about a decade or so after the passage from last week. And uh, here it is. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said unto him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The word of the Lord. Well, if you were to write your own autobiography, some of you might be planning on that already, what memories would you include? So for you adults, as you think back to when you were 6 or 16 or 26, what would be the moments that stood out to you, that made you who you are today? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, the author and physician Luke is seeking to communicate as a historian the truth about Jesus Christ. He tells Theophilus, the man he's writing this book for, in the first four verses of his gospel, that he has done all of this, he has done his due diligence, he has listened to the eyewitnesses and to others, and is now presenting what he calls an orderly account for Theophilus, a true history of Jesus Christ. But it's interesting to note that in that history, there's only one story of Jesus as a young boy. So the only time in the Bible we see a story about Jesus in his childhood and young adulthood is in the passage Michael just read for us. This must be an important story for us to consider. At least that's what Luke the historian believes. So let's dig into it. In our studies so far in this gospel, we've seen events leading up to and including and shortly after Jesus' birth. And in chapter 3, verse 21, we see Jesus, we will see Jesus, Lord willing, baptized by John, beginning his earthly ministry. But nowhere in the Gospels do we see anything about Jesus at the age of 6 or 16 or 26, except right here. Luke is including these for a specific purpose, church. He's jumping into the middle of Jesus' life to show us who Jesus is. So with our time together, we just have two simple points. Jesus' identity 
and Jesus' mission. Identity, mission, first identity. Look with me at verse 41. Now his parents, that is Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So last week in verse 39, we saw Jesus as a baby and his parents returned to Nazareth, that small hometown village, probably about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. And then we don't know anything about what happened in that next decade. Presumably, Jesus grew as a normal boy. So there are legends that have circulated for centuries about Jesus having boyhood powers and miraculous abilities. But the Bible confirms none of that. Here we see Jesus as a regular human child growing up in his parents' home. The one thing we do know about that intervening decade, though, is there in verse 41. Every year, his family would make the 80-mile trek from Nazareth to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. We're not sure whether Jesus accompanied them all of those years. This might be his first trip to Passover, especially as he enters kind of the Jewish adult stage at the age of 13. But it's clear that the feast of Passover has been and continues to be an important date on the yearly calendar for Joseph and Mary. They make an attempt or an effort to attend this feast every single year. You, you remember what the feast of the Passover signified, right? From our study in the book of Exodus, if you were here at that point last year. The Passover was a feast along with the feast of unleavened bread that lasted for a week. Where God's people celebrated with the deliverance he accomplished for them from slavery in Egypt. Eating the Passover, eating that lamb, reminded them that God had judged their oppressor rather than them. That he had passed over their homes and judged the firstborn of Egypt and preserved them. The Passover was all about God's great deliverance. And now over a millennium later, a greater Moses, a greater, greater Passover lamb is coming to the temple with his family to celebrate God's deliverance. Jesus, we see in verse 42, is 12 at this time. He obediently, obediently attends with his parents, and everything seems to go well. It looks like the feast was a great one. It ends there in verse 43, and then the story goes crazy. So halfway through verse 43, we see Mary and Joseph pack up. They leave for Nazareth, go back home after a busy week. But Luke tells us that the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, this wasn't Jesus getting lost or mistakenly left, kind of like the Bible version of Home Alone, right? No, this was a purposeful decision made by the 12-year-old Jesus. This also wasn't a failure on the parenting of Mary and Joseph, so Passover worshipers traveling those long distances usually traveled by caravan, so they would be less susceptible to highway robbers. Um, it's possible that this caravan probably operated like a big family, going back to their small town. And so considering Jesus was almost a teenager, it wasn't irresponsible for Mary and Joseph to assume, since they were all getting up and packing out, that he was along with them at some point. Some people think Mary and Joseph might have been traveling in different places, the women in one place, the men in another place. And so maybe they just assumed the other parent had the child. Any of you kind of understand how that feels? I'm not sure if that's the way it was. That's the way it was in the centuries after, but perhaps it was then as well. 
Anyway, it wasn't really a fault of Jesus's or his parents. It was the sovereign will of God, and we'll see why. When the first day of traveling comes to an end, Mary and Joseph find they're mistaken. Uh, They've probably covered over 20 miles that first day. And so presumably with the day coming to an end and nightfall about to set in, they get ready to sleep. And so naturally they look for their son and they can't find him. Every parent knows that feeling. Where's my child, right? All of you moms have said that at some point. So Mary and Joseph begin to look everywhere. They look among their family first, their their other traveling companions. Nothing starts to turn up. The worry starts to build the longer they can't find him. And then things get really serious in verse 45. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So a day's journey out, 20 to 25 miles. Now a day's journey back. Mary and Joseph are exhausted and the anxiety isn't helping. It's not until the third day back in Jerusalem that they finally locate their son. And at that point, you can imagine the fear and the distress. So look what they see in verse 46. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So after three days, after at least 40 miles of traveling and a whole lot of anxiety, Mary and Joseph find Jesus. And what he's doing, what's he doing? He's in the temple complex, sitting with the teachers of Israel, talking about the things of God's people. Mary and Joseph have a reaction to that. And we'll see that soon. But first, look at the reaction Jesus is having on those who are listening to him. He's making an impact. It says, all, Luke says, all who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus was showing insight and perception beyond his years as he sat with these older men. That the style of learning back then was more of a dialogue, and they were learning from one another. And so Jesus is sitting in the middle of all these teachers, and he's listening. He's asking. He's proffering answers. Think about that. I mean, if that's not humility, I don't know what is. Because all of the law that these teachers have studied all of their lives point to this boy in the middle of their gathering. 22 chapters later in Luke, Jesus will tell the, the, the men on the road to Emmaus that all of the Bible, all of the law points to him. So here's the culmination of the law sitting in the temple. And what's he doing? He's asking questions. He's listening. He's asking these leaders for their thoughts. It's astonishing. And church, I think there's good application for us here when we look at the example of Jesus, the 12-year-old boy. See, in our, in our day and age, there are myriad opportunities to get our thoughts broadcasted, right? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, blogs, articles, op-eds, YouTube, chat rooms, email, text convos, emojis, GIFs, or however you pronounce them, memes, the list goes on. I prefer GIFs. Words abound, And with a hot take coming in every moment, and then outrage over a half-cooked story coming in the next moment, we can often get wrapped up in this never-ending cascade of news and forget to sit and meditate and listen. 
ask questions. What's worse with these media platforms, which they can be used for good. I'm not, that's just not my point today. We can so easily put forward our opinions and our reactions and our thoughts and our agendas without much consideration of who's on the other end of those. Because the ability and freedom to spout our opinion is always a tap or a click away. That's dangerous. Christians, we ought to be some of the first and most eager to listen, to ask questions, even as we state the truth of the gospel. I think those who have the truth will be most secure to listen to other thoughts, other ideas, to engage with them without being rattled and shaken. Christians, we will not shirk back from declaring the truth. But it doesn't give us license to hit others over the head with it without any thought to what Peter calls respectfulness and gentleness. We ought to be dialoguing with those around us, listening maybe just as much as we speak. Christian, in your workplace, in your family gatherings coming up at Thanksgiving, in your evangelism, are you known as someone who's overbearing and hard to talk to? Or are you known as someone who listens and asks questions? Jesus shows us an example of wisdom and humility here. If anyone could have got up and preached a sermon bashing bad use of the law, it was Jesus. And yet he sits and he asks questions and he listens and he answers And the teacher's response is amazement. Who is this kid? Joseph and Mary, on the other hand, very different. Verse 48. They're astonished. Because here they've been looking for their son for three days, and he's contentedly spending time with the temple teachers. I think parents who've ever had a moment of losing a child for whether it's a minute or an hour, you know that, that feeling that once you see that child again, you have this 50-50 mixed emotion of relief and love and anger. Why did you put me through this? Perhaps that's a bit of what Mary and Joseph are feeling here because it's been three days. No wonder they're upset. So no wonder Mary in verse 58 speaks up and rebukes her son. She says, son, Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Jesus' answer at first read might seem a little pertinent, his answer, but it's not. It's merciful. Because he takes this moment to clarify something about who he is, about his identity. Do you notice the the contrast that Luke is drawing here. Because Mary comes up and she says what? Your father and I have been searching for you. And then what does Jesus do? He responds by clarifying who his father really is. He says, why were you looking for me, father and mother? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? His mother's point is that he should have been traveling back to Nazareth with his father's house. And he counters by saying, no, actually, I'm called to remain in Jerusalem in my father's house. Capital F, 
Father. These are Jesus' very first words in the Gospel of Luke. After a hundred plus verses, Jesus speaks, and his words are incredibly important. He's saying who he is. I'm the Son of God. I'm no ordinary child. Friend, I wonder who you think Jesus is. Lots of people have lots of different opinions about who Jesus was and is. At the very least, we can mostly all agree that he was a historical figure in first century Palestine. But for many, they go further. Jesus is something more. He's a, he's a teacher. He's a, he was a martyr. He was a prophet. But regardless of your opinions, it's always wise to think, well, what did he say about who he was, who he is? Here we see in Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Luke that he knows he is not just a historical figure, not just a teacher, not just a martyr. He's the son of God. Now, this is a free country. You can have any opinion you want about who Jesus is. Friend, let's be honest. Having an opinion in no way means you have the truth. You can have an opinion, sure. We can talk about that. But you can't have the truth unless you see what Jesus says about himself. Jesus says he is God, the son of the living God. This means he is higher, he is greater. He rightfully has a claim on the lives and the obedience of his people. This is who Jesus understands himself to be as a 12-year-old sitting in the temple in Jerusalem. And so as C.S. Lewis has popularized it, either that makes him a liar a lunatic, or the Lord. Either he's crazy or he's evil, or he is who he says he is. He's God. Friend, is your Jesus that Jesus, the Jesus revealed in Scripture? Even if you disagree, be honest as you think about who Jesus is. Take his words for what they are. Accept them or reject them. But don't make him out to be somebody he never said he was. And Christians here this morning, remember Jesus, as the Son of God, has authority to speak into your life. In this passage, he's a boy growing up in first century Palestine, but he's also the Son of God incarnate. He's a second person of the Trinity from eternity past, taking on human form. You cannot remake him into a Jesus you're comfortable with. You need to trust him for who he is. This little glimpse into those middle decades of Jesus' life reveals his identity, the son of God. But then they also reveal his mission. Because he says to his mother, why were you looking for me? This is our second point, mission. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He's not just making a a statement about his identity. He's saying, this is where I need to be. This is my my calling. Jesus is asking that as a rhetorical question. It assumes an affirmative response. Did you know I would be here? They should have known he was going to be in the temple. This is what he's been called to. He's the son of God come to God's people to proclaim God's truth. The original Greek language here has this sense of necessity. Jesus is saying, I must be here in my Father's house. It's incumbent upon me to be here. 
J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop in Liverpool in the 1800s, says it this way. He says, Jesus was no common person and had come into the world to do no common work. His heavenly Father's work demanded his first attention. This is a huge moment, church. Jesus is telling his mother, he's lived with for 12 years, reminding her his first duty is not to her, but to God, his father. There's there's sadness here. This is the first sign of Simeon's prophecy from last week coming true. Do you remember that? Look back at verse 35 and before, 34, 35. Simeon is that guy in the temple we saw last week who had held the infant Jesus in his arms and given this wonderful prophecy of good news and good feelings. And, and then he had said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall of and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that's opposed. So we thought last week about how Jesus would be opposed. And do you remember what Simeon said then? He turned specifically to Mary and he said, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Jesus' mission will bring pain to the heart of his mother because he won't be a normal boy. Here she is upset and frantic. And he says, did you not know? Why were you looking for me? I think this was a jarring moment for Mary. I think this is a reminder for her that this parent-child relationship will be drastically different. Jesus is saying, I have come to serve my Father in heaven above all things. This is my mission. Jesus has come to carry out the salvation plan of his heavenly Father. This mission will take him all the way to the cross, the most specific, explicit point where we see that sword going into the heart of Mary where she weeps and mourns in the death of her firstborn son. But all throughout his life, Mary will struggle with this. Because Jesus' mission will bring God's people deliverance from death, but it's also an identity and a mission hard to understand. You see that in verse 50? Mary and Joseph don't get it, at least not all of it. At the end of verse 51, Mary again treasures up all these things in her heart, pondering them and considering them. Later we'll see in the Gospel of Luke the disciples struggling with the same stuff. What exactly is this man's mission? What exactly is his identity? It's something revealed more and more over the course of Luke's biography of Jesus. So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're so welcome But we just want you to see here what we're seeing. We're all seeing here in bud form what will continue to flower and blossom throughout the Gospel of Luke. We see Jesus' claim to his identity and his mission. That he came as the Son of God to do something incredible, something no one else could do. That he had come as the Son of God to bear the judgment of God for sinners against God. Friend, if if you're here and you're not a Christian, each of you, like all of us, are separated from God because of your sin. You have turned against God. Every single one of you. 
And your rebellion means you must die under the wrath of God. Spiritual death. That's just not me saying that. That's God's word saying that. Jesus talked about hell. The place where those separated from God will be judged eternally. But, but Jesus has come. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that though God's people have turned against him, and that rebellion means that you must die as a sinner under God's holiness. He's saying, well, one has come. Actually, the only one who could come, who could even take that justice on himself and die under God's wrath for you. That one is Jesus. Think about it. Since he perfectly obeyed his father and had no sin of his own to die for, he died for ours. Turn to Jesus and be saved. Be forgiven. If you have questions about that, you can talk to me afterwards. You can talk to somebody sitting next to you. Uh, we won't try to ram this down your throat, but we'd love to share the hope that we found, the satisfaction we found in Jesus. And church, the last few verses of this text are something that I can easily breeze over, but they are profound. So in order to accomplish his mission, Jesus humbled himself by taking on our humanity and dying for our sin. We just said that, right? That's the gospel. But this humility is shown strikingly in verses 51 and 52. Because Jesus has made his identity known. Mary and Joseph have pursued him all the way to the temple, and he has said, this is who I am. Did you not know that I was going to be here? But then what does he do? After this big a statement of his identity, does he, does he take over? Does he then take the pulpit and start teaching the, the teachers? Does he go out on his own saying, you know, I'm almost an adult anyway, so... You guys go back to Nazareth. I'm, I'm staying, staying here. Verse 51. And he went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He went down with his parents and obeyed them. Verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The Son of God remaining obedient to his earthly father and mother, living perfectly in submission to them, the never-beginning, never-ending Son of God, growing up in years, the one above time, descending into time, like us, growing and maturing physically and mentally and spiritually. Also, he could be fit to die as our Savior. You can read more about that in Hebrews, how Jesus became perfect through suffering, how he kept God's law so he could be a suitable savior. Church, in no sense does this mean Jesus was ever sinful. But it does mean he grew. He obeyed. Seriously, how amazing is the humility of the Son of God? If you're a kid here today, you're still in your parents' home, think about it. I mean, isn't it amazing that Jesus, of all people, obeyed his parents? I mean, one author says it this way. He says, if there was ever a child who could make the case for not listening to his parents, it was Jesus. That's, that's funny to think about. I mean, if you were the perfect son of God who had made Mary and Joseph, 
been the agent of their creation in the image of God. I mean, if anybody, you wouldn't need to obey everything they said. You're greater than them. But here we see Jesus, Jesus, submitting to his parents in obedience. Why? Well, he submitted to his parents because he submitted to his father, God. He obeyed his parents because he wanted to obey God. So I wonder, children, if you're still kids, teenagers, if you're still in your parents' home, why do you obey your parents? Is it to get stuff from them? Is it to stay out of trouble? Those aren't bad reasons. But ultimately, the reason you should obey your parents is because you want to obey God. Their authority over you is nothing if it has not been given them by God. It doesn't mean they're always perfect in telling you what to do. If they tell you to do something that's contrary to Scripture, you must disobey because their authority comes from God and it's his authority you ultimately obey. But it does mean that you should listen and respect them when they tell you to clean up or study or wake up. By doing so, you honor God's authority. And and parents, I wonder why you want to be obeyed. Is it to be in control? To save face in front of others? To get what you want from your kids? To feel proud in the way you've raised them? Again, some of those things probably aren't that great. Some of them, sure. But in the same way your kids ought to obey you in order to honor God, I think you must desire their obedience in order to honor God. In order that your children might know God. So in that light, your discipline and leadership aren't only for your glory and your benefit where it can quickly become abusive, but it's for God's glory where it will cause your kids to flourish. The author Tim Chester writes in a book on parenting that the guys in the boot camp just went through. He says, learning to enjoy parents' authority is the first step towards welcoming God's authority. And then he talks to parents, and he says, don't tell children off for being children. Children break things and drop things. They get giddy and raise their voices, but ensure they obey you. Teach them to submit to your authority. Discipline disobedience. Don't let your child rule the home. If you do, you'll be teaching them that they are the king in their lives and they're not. It won't prepare them for wider social interaction, and it won't prepare them to meet the true king. So I know there aren't too many things more difficult and more joyous in life than the parent-child relationship, but may we as parents and children seek obedience in our homes to honor God's authority, not just our own. And church, there's good news here as we close. Why did Jesus come and live for almost 30 years before beginning his earthly ministry? But why, why did he spend a good number of, time, of, of years in his life before he actually began his ministry? Well, he did it to obey when we couldn't. One scholar points out that he obeyed as an infant, a child, and an adult, which covers all of us. 
Jesus obeyed for all of us. He obeyed when we couldn't. He came to live the life we should have lived so he could die the death we deserve to die. That's why we talk about the gospel. We talk about Jesus' birth, incarnation, and his life leading up to his death and resurrection. Jesus was seeking to save us even as he obeyed his parents as a 12-year-old. Kids, look at Jesus, not just as your example. Don't leave this morning being like, well, Jesus obeyed. I need to obey. Yeah, yeah, talk about that. Think about that. But mostly, look at Jesus as your Savior, as one who obeyed when you don't, as the one who loved his parents when you hate them, as the one who listened when you fail to, as the one who died in your place. Parents see the same thing. See Jesus who came and perfectly loved those under him, under his authority, and died for your failures. Church, Jesus came as the Son of God and submitted to his Father's mission for our salvation. And as part of that mission, he needed to humble himself, to obey Mary and Joseph, to live in obedience for us. Isn't that cause to worship him? What a Savior. What a Savior we have. As we come to the Lord's Supper, we get to praise the one who gave himself for us. Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage that gives us a kind of look into the identity and mission of Jesus. Lord, we pray for humble hearts like his. We pray for eager minds to understand the gospel that he came to bring. But Lord, most of all, we see that when we look at Jesus, the perfect 12-year-old, the Son of God, we know that there's no hope for our salvation apart from him dying in our place. And so, Jesus, we look to you as our example, but mostly we look to you as our Savior. And we praise you for what a Savior you are. Hear our praises from joyful lips. In Jesus' name, amen.